you would please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah 48. We're going to briefly review what we covered last week and then kind of pick up where we left off. Isaiah chapter 48, starting in verse 1, we'll read the first five verses and then we'll look at the application. It says, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is as an iron sinew, and thy brow brass, I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Lest thou should say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. And so in verse 1 here, we saw last time the fact that Israel is insincere. They're hypocritical. They pledge allegiance to Je Jehovah, but it's not in truth or in righteousness. And you'll see those words mentioned, uh, the swearing by the name of the Lord, making mention of the God of Israel. But then it has the word, but not in truth nor in righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 2 to describe a little bit more their insincerity. The fact that their relationship with God is really casual, and it's not really a deep faith that would influence their conduct. And that's the idea of them calling themselves of the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, and that they're stayed upon the God of Israel, but in reality... They just do lip service. They don't do that with their whole heart and with the, the idea of faith. And then God keeps mentioning through Isaiah the prophet, and he's done this since chapter 40 all the way through here, chapter 48, the fact that he's proclaimed future events, and then he's made them happen. And so in the end, his assessment is in verse 4 and 5 concerning them, and in reality, he has mentioned they're insincere, they're hypocritical, they're not truthful, they're not righteous, they're obstinate, they're stubborn, they're blasphemous, and they're idol worshipers. Um, and if we really wanted to put punctuation on that, we would say, and that's their good points. But I want us to be careful because we're just like them. And that's where we had picked up last week in the application for us. The first thing was at the beginning of, of the verses he mentions here. And the idea of that here is not just listening, but it's also obeying. It's, it's you know, kind of wrapped up in the Hebrew word that's used. And then after he tells them to pay attention, they wants their attention, he wants them to, to look, he says, you need to have a high view of God. And we've covered this because throughout chapters 40 and 48 
Isaiah has been bringing them back to the fact that God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, but even more important, he's transcendent. That no matter what happens with his creation, he is high above his creation. And I would say this is an area where the church today, I think, misses the mark a lot we don't have a high enough opinion of God. And when we have a high opinion of God, I, I'm gonna take you back just in, in reference. Isaiah chapter six is the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. And for those that might remember, that particular chapter highlights the fact that Isaiah was in the temple and he was worshiping and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then as he saw God high and lifted up, he heard the heavenly creatures, the angelic beings saying, holy, holy, holy. And one particular pastor that was talking about that passage said, it's almost like on one side of the auditorium, there's some heavenly creatures. And then on the other side, there's some more. And one set on one side says, holy, holy, holy. And then on the other side, the other set of heavenly creatures answers, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. And so I honestly believe we can't, in our minds and thoughts, elevate God high enough. Tozer, I read some things that he mentioned. The most important thing he said about you and I is our thoughts of God when we hear his name mentioned. And so the first application is much like Isaiah has been exhorting Israel, we need to have a high view of God. And then behind that, and I mentioned the fact he's transcendent and high above his creation, and he's omniscient and omnipotent. We need to remove our idols. Our sins, like Israel's sins, have separated us from God. And this is, this is applicable to you and I today, the church. Um, it's one thing if we were unbelievers and we didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is, is too often we as his church, Christ's church, live our lives in a way that isn't a whole lot different than an unbeliever. How much do we have God involved in our decisions, in our day-to-day -day thoughts? Um, how much do we allow idols, and really you could almost substitute idols for sins in our life, habitual sins. And so the application for us is we need to have a high view of God, we need to remove the idols and sin in our life. And then we need to have a proper perspective on the future. And I think this is kind of fitting that we didn't quite get done with this last week, because what do we do on December 31st of every year? Most of us look back a little bit and we may have some fond memories or if we've had a rough year, we may have some rough memories, but we look forward also, and we look forward to what the next year will bring. Now, sometimes, based on the news that we may have gotten this year, 
the next year we look at as being a rough year in front of us. But one thing that doesn't change, and that's God's word. And just like Isaiah went to the children of Israel and he basically said, here's what's going to happen in the future. Babylon's going to take some captive. And then there's this guy named Cyrus. And he's going to free everyone. And they're thinking, you got to be kidding me. God's using a Gentile? But he did. Well, the church also has a lot of things concerning the future. One of the things we covered last week was the fact that there's a purpose for what God puts in his word that's prophetic, that's in the future, that hasn't come to pass yet. The primary reason is so you and I will know that he's faithful and trustworthy. It's not so much that we can know the future. And then the last one, which is a quote out of 1 John 3, 3, Christ's second coming should cause us to purify ourselves. If we have that hope in us, we should want to meet him face to face, but we should want to be at our best. And so those are the purposes. And so we just started last week, and I started with Israel because if you want to know what God is doing right now, what you do is you look to his chosen people. And I'm not talking about the church. Let's not get them mixed up. They are distinctly separate. I'm talking about his promises to Israel. And we mentioned the fact Ezekiel 37 talks about the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's explained in that passage that that is the nation Israel. I believe part of that has come to fruition since 1948, but I also believe there's still more to come because spiritually Israel doesn't recognize her Messiah yet. And so one of the future prophetic predictions that we can look to is what God's going to do with Israel. It's not going to cease to exist as much as Israel's enemies would like to try and make that happen. God is going to be faithful and God is more than adequate to defeat all the nations that may come up against Israel. And then we have the world, the world around us. And the world for a lot of us is dominantly what we see in our own country. And there's a number of things that scriptures say about the world. Matthew 24 Jesus was asked about the end times, what would be the sign of his coming. And one of the things he said, as in the days of Noah, so, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he goes on to say they were marrying and giving in marriage. And so we see the breakdown of the family. We see a lot of the things that Jesus described in Matthew 24 are starting to take place. And then on top of that, we have 2 Timothy 3, says in the last days perilous times shall come. And all you have to do is watch the news and you start to realize how perilous things are in this day. Um, there are all sorts of atrocities that are going on throughout the whole world, but sadly, a lot of those are now in our country. 
I remember some number of years ago the fact that uh, <clears throat> there was all this conflict in the Middle East and someone said to me, said, you know, they're crazy over there, all the things they're doing. Guess what? It's now crazy over here. You know, back 30, 40 years ago, we didn't hear about that much angst and, and just unrest and unlawfulness in our country, but now it's rampant. And so we see that happening. In addition to that, Revelation 13 has the passage that says, no man can buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast and the number of his name. Most of you, I think, can remember back into the 1970s. And I remember back in the 1970s, there might be a few that can't, but back in the 1970s, I remember first hearing about the rapture, the tribulation, the mark of the beast, and these things. And of all the things that I heard, this one in particular kind of had me scratching my head. And you say, well, why did you scratch your head? Well, I started thinking about, what about the tribe in the African bush? How are they going to buy or sell without this, or, or how can they control them buying and selling unless they have this mark? Well, you and I are seeing that come to fruition. Just a few nights ago, we saw, if you looked at, in my case, my front door, um, but if you looked out and you looked toward the Cape, they launched two different rockets within a couple hours of each other. And if I remember correctly, one of those has those Starlink satellites. And they have launched, I think, hundreds of those, because I think each launch is like about 50 or 60 satellites. And that's to bring internet to all of these remote places of the earth. You and I today are seeing prophecy fulfilled. We're seeing this verse in Revelation 13. The stage is being set for that to be fulfilled. There was a song I also remember hearing in the 1970s. It's called Redemption Draweth Nigh. It says, years of time have come and gone since I first heard it told how Jesus would come again someday. If back then it seemed so real, then I just can't help but feel how much closer his coming is today. Signs of the times are everywhere. There's a brand new feeling in the air. Keep your eyes on the eastern sky. Lift up your head. Redemption draweth nigh. In the 70s when I heard it, like I said, this was one of many prophecies, but this one in particular, I didn't see how it was going to happen at that time. I had no doubt that God would do it. I just didn't know how it would come about. Today, we see that happening. Now, there's some other prophecies I want us to look at. The rapture. The rapture, we don't know exactly when it will be. First Thessalonians 4 
It's the passage that is most often referenced concerning the rapture, and it's the idea of being caught up to be with the Lord in the air. At his second coming, when he comes to earth, not at the rapture, but the second coming, he will come to rule and reign, but his church will be removed. And I believe that is coinciding with <coughs> excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2, where the Antichrist needs to be revealed, and he won't until the one that restrains is taken out of the way. I don't believe that is the church. I don't believe that because I don't believe the church has the wherewithal to restrain Satan and his power. I do believe it is the indwelling Holy Spirit in the church. And so the church and the Holy Spirit, I believe, both are removed at the rapture. And the Holy Spirit isn't removed as in totally vacating the earth. I think the Holy Spirit goes back to operating just like he did in the Old Testament. Um, we live in a time period and we really don't know what that's like because when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. So we go from unbeliever to Holy Spirit indwelt believer. And there's not anything in between, whereas in the Old Testament, they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That was a promise that Jesus made when he left, that he would send the Comforter. At the rapture, I think things are reverting back to the Old Testament economy, and the focus is no longer the church, <clears throat> but rather it is switching back to Israel again. So that brings us to the tribulation time. <clears throat> Any volunteers to live during that time? Uh, I would recommend we all pass, you know, and take part in the rapture. Tribulation is described in Revelation 6 through 22. There's some interludes in there, but it's God's judgment. <clears throat> Talks about Israel's role and the fact that there will be a revival that is brought about, I believe, by the Jewish people. It also describes the unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. And it gives a lot more details about the future. And then Daniel chapter 7 through 12 also talks about the rise and fall of kingdoms. It talks about God's timing for Israel, his plan, talks about the abomination of desolation, which I believe in order for the abomination of desolation to happen, there may have taught that the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt. I don't think that's a big problem. I think that will happen. And in the middle of the tribulation, Antichrist is basically gonna set up a statue of himself, which is the abomination of desolation in the temple and as he's gonna require that they worship him. And there's a lot of other de details about both prophetic history as well as the future that you find in Daniel. And so we have these prophecies, just like Israel had prophecies. In their case, the more immediate one was Babylon taking uh, them captive and then Cyrus setting them free. All of that being said, 
in this application, we need to declare God's truth and his glory. These prophecies, they're there for you and I, just like Isaiah said, the other prophecies were there for Israel. And the purpose of those was so that we could point to God and say he's faithful, and he's trustworthy. And we know that, we know it even more so than the children of Israel because we can look back at prophecies that were made by the prophets before they were fulfilled and we can now see their fulfillment. The handful that I just mentioned are prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet, but they're just as sure as the ones that have already been fulfilled. And by the way, I just gave you a thumbnail. I gave you some of the highlights. I didn't give you all the details. Um, I do have two books that it's not often that I recommend books, but if you would like a much more scholarly dissertation on uh, prophecies, there's a title called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. It's uh, more like a textbook and it's pretty thick, but he does an excellent job of describing these prophecies and many more. And then if you want a good dissertation on Daniel, uh, there's a book titled The Coming Prince, and that's by Sir Robert Anderson, if I remember his first name right. And he goes through um, some of the timing that's mentioned in Daniel in excruciating detail, much more detailed than what I wanted to take time for today, but those are two good books that I think are very scholarly and very well written that keep our focus on the fact that God's prophecies are not just whimsical, but rather they're very well thought out and they're very detailed. They aren't just general uh, things. I mean, I heard people as I was at work and things, they would talk about Nostradamus. Well, a lot of his things were very much uh, connecting the dots of what he saw and very generic. Just to, to kind of summarize what we just covered, <clears throat> I'm gonna to read to you a quote from a book. The book is called The End, A Complete Overview of Bible Prophecy in the End Days, because it kind of gives a nice summary says the tribulation begins the seven-year tribulation will commence with the reunited Roman Empire signing a peace treaty with Israel guarantee the, guaranteeing the country's safety and security and probably solving the thorny Middle East crisis. The Antichrist as leader of this Roman Empire will secure this peace accord. The world will hail him as a great peacemaker. The treaty will lull Israel into a sense of security. Then during the first half of the tribulation when Israel has let its guard down, a massive Russian Islamic coalition will attack Israel. The Bible refers to this Pearl Harbor-like invasion as the War of Gog and Magog. God will supernaturally deliver Israel by wiping out the armies of the Gog coalition. 
The decimation of these armies will leave a power vacuum in the East and the Antichrist will seize control, break his pact with Israel and swiftly begin to consolidate his power. The Antichrist will dominate the latter half of the tribulation, three and a half years, as he institutes a one world government, economy and religion aided by his henchman, the false prophet. During this time, the Antichrist will declare himself to be God, will require universal worship, will institute the notorious tribulation trademark, the mark of the beast, 666. And so, whether he got all those details in the right order or not is debatable. We don't know until God brings them to fruition, but they are details that much like a puzzle might fit together in different ways. But I'll give you five signs of the ends of the times, things to watch for in the news. The first one is the regathering of the Jewish people. Whatever happens to Israel, that is definitely a sign of the times. The second one is church apostasy. We don't think about this often, but we're seeing a lot of that in our day. Churches that no longer hold true to the word of God, but are spewing man's wisdom instead of God's word. The coming Middle East peace, and we've seen a lot of stuff concerning the peace in the Middle East since the Hamas attack. The reuniting of the Roman Empire. In Daniel, he talks about a statue that starts with a head of gold and then a a midsection of silver and then bronze and then iron at the end and then the toes and feet are a mixture of iron and clay. That iron and clay is the revived Roman Empire and that will happen. And then fifthly is globalism. Watch for those things because those things are gonna be the things that give us a pretty good indication that God is starting to move to the final stages of really purifying Israel. And that's what this chapter in Isaiah is about. And I thought it was important that we kind of put it in perspective of our day and age, not just the day and age of that. And so like them, we need to declare God's truth. One of the things we need to be sure of is that we're pro proclaiming God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. Um, you hear all sorts of things nowadays that are being taught and preached and, and brought into the church that has nothing to do with God's word. And if, if anything, it's diametrically opposite God's word. We also need to go God's truth and prophetic predictions to share with others. There are some people that if they really took a look at what God says in his word about the future, they would see enough evidence that Jesus is truly the Messiah and that he is the savior that they need in their life. But some will never believe except by seeing the fact that God has already fulfilled his predictions and there are many more that he's going to be, be fulfilling. And the other thing we need to be sure of is to give God the credit and glory. And so as we continue on in Isaiah, what you're gonna see is 
this is exactly what Isaiah tells to them. And so I've tried to apply it to us. I think sometimes as I'm going through the passages, yeah, I may be a little negligent in saying, hey, are we applying this to us? And so this time I figured I would start with the application. And then as we look at Israel and what Isaiah is saying to them, we need to realize it's true of us too. Not only is the obstinance and stubborn and all the, the good points I mentioned earlier, and I say that sarcastically, not only are those true of Israel and us, but so are the things that we need to do to fix it. And so let's pick up in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 6. He says, Thou hast heard, see all this, <clears throat> and will you not declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, that thou didst not know them. And so in verse 6, he's highlighting the fact he wants them to pay attention. He uses heard. You know, have you not heard? Have you not paid attention to what Isaiah's been saying in chapters 40 through 47? He says, have you not heard? Can't you see all this? Everything that Isaiah has presented to them, he's saying, can't you see it? It's right there in front of you. Why don't you see it? And he says, will you not declare it? Part of what Isaiah has been saying to Israel in chapters 40 through 47 is that they are his witnesses. They are his servants. And he points out the fact that they aren't very faithful servants. But they are legitimate witnesses in that they've seen what God has done. Now, they may not be faithful to God, but they can definitely say God's been faithful to them. And so he's highlighting this and he's saying, I've showed you new things from this time and you didn't know them. And so he's emphasizing the fact that it's new things. And then verse seven, he highlights it again. He says, they, talking about the new things, are created now, not from the beginning. So they weren't things that God showed them from the very beginning. He says, even before the day when thou heardest them not, shouldest thou say, behold, I knew them. And so he's kind of highlighting the fact, I'm telling you new things. I'm telling you right now because I didn't want you claiming, oh, I already knew that. And aren't we like that? We're just like them. You know, I don't know about you, but our parents may tell us something that we should do. And typical brash young person, we say, well, I already knew that. Oh yeah, right. Our parents know we don't know it, and that's why they've told us in some of these things. And then verse 8, he says it again, Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not. And so he said, Don't tell me you already knew it, because you never heard it before, and you didn't even have a clue. You never knew this. 
And he says, Yea, from that time that thine ear was not open, for I knew thou wouldst deal treacherously and was, <clears throat> was called a transgressor, transgressor from the womb. And so if you look at this, just like up on our application, we need to declare God's truth and glory. God's saying to Israel, will you not declare what you've seen and heard? And then he says, I've shown you new and hidden prophecies. And he really has repeated that three times in different ways. And he said, you didn't know these. Don't even pretend that you did. I know you didn't because I just gave them to you. And God's reasons for progressive disclosure, and I'm calling it progressive disclosure for a reason. There's a lot of people that feel that today there's new revelation. <clears throat> I don't believe that. I believe when the canon of scripture was complete, that there was no further revelation, that the things that people claim about further revelation is either their imagination or a satanic influence in their, their life that's bringing that about. Progressive disclosure is God showing them new things, new to them, only because it's new to them. It's not new to God. First, he didn't want them claiming that they already knew it. And so part of the reason he did it was he knew human nature. Human nature is one of trying to arrogantly claim we already knew something. He knew that they would handle it deceitfully. The word treacherously is used in the King James. And then Israel was a transgressor from its inception. If you look back, did Abraham sin? He lied. Lied about his wife, who was also his half-sister. Abraham, they can look to the patriarchs. And really, the only one that doesn't have much to say about him is Isaac. But Jacob, man, he was a scoundrel. You know, there wasn't any doubt that he sinned. And so looking at their, their patriarch ancestry, Israel was a transgressor from its inception. And so God knows this. And God has a solution for it. In verse 9, 9 through 11, he says, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. For my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even mine own sake, will I do it. And how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. God's glory is his character. His church may at times honor him, but at other times we dishonor him. Not a lot of difference between us as the church and Israel, God's chosen people. Now, the two are distinctly different, but our fleshly nature 
it's the same. It's not different. And so <clears throat> this passage kind of explains why God does what he does. First thing, why is God's anger not consume us? Roxanne? Pardon me? Mercy, okay. He uses a, a different phrase, but it has the same implication that Roxanne is getting at. He basically says, for his namesake. So I want you to think about this for a minute. When we're praying for a lost family member, lost loved one, a, a neighbor that we know needs to accept Christ and the forgiveness that is there. Do we pray? Oh, let me finish this thought and then I'll get you, okay? Do we pray, God, they deserve it so much, would you save them? No. Do we pray, God, because I'm your child, I'm asking you to save them? Is there any merit in any of us that would warrant God acting favorably because we're asking? Not apart from Christ. And so I want us to realize that when we pray for the lost, we ought to pray, God, for your name's sake. In fact, the thing that I've heard expressed before that just really touched my heart was, God, would you please make so-and-so a trophy of your grace and mercy? Because it's God's character that causes him to act favorably on Israel's behalf, and yours and my behalf. And so when we're praying, I would, I would suggest to us that we pray, God, for your name's sake, for your mercy and grace, for your glory, would you please save my friend? Or would you please do thus and such in my life? It's not because I deserve it, that's for certain. But it's because of his character that we ought to ask. Lynette, thank you for waiting. Yes. Yep. In fact, in Psalm 23, he said he makes us walk in paths of righteousness for his name. Yeah, Lynette has highlighted the fact, and, and that's why I wanted to emphasize it today. This isn't just in this passage. It's in other passages, and she referenced the psalm where it says, for his name's sake, he causes us to do different things. And so the first thing I want you to notice <clears throat> is God's character defers his anger. It's his character that causes it. If he looks at you and I and our sin, just like Israel and its sin, we deserve his anger. Let's be honest, we really do. But because of his character, his grace and his mercy, he defers that anger and he doesn't pour it out on us. What Moses said to God, and he said, don't destroy these people. Yes. For your name. Exactly. 
It was God's character that was on the line, and God knew it. He just was pulling it out of Moses for our benefit. Yeah, exactly. Think about our nation today. Our sin as a culture, as a society, deserves God's judgment. Honestly, we know that's true. The church, and I'm not talking about this specific church, I'm talking about the church in America, those that are true believers. We have a lot that deserves God's judgment. And the question is, will we receive mercy? Will we ask for mercy based on his namesake? Or will we receive judgment? The only thing that's going to save our country is revival. It's not going to be politicians. It's not going to be new laws or reenacting old ones. The only thing that's going to save our country is revival. And so tonight when we come together as a church and we have a prayer service, one of the things that we need to look toward the future and ask God for is we need to say, God, for your name's sake, you raised up this country, you brought into existence the United States of America, and you gave us a godly heritage. And we've forsaken you, and we really need your mercy because our sin deserves your judgment. And we need to pray for a revival for our country Israel needed to do that. God restrains from cutting off Israel for what reason? Look back at the passage there. He says, I cut thee not off. Why, why is he going to not cut Israel off? Well, his namesake is why he defers his anger, but there's something real close to that. What else is mentioned in there? For his praise. The sake of his praise. And so Israel is not cut off. It exists today so that you and I can praise God for his faithfulness and trustworthiness and the promises that he's made to them. What has he done to Israel instead of cutting them off? Pardon me? Discipline. Discipline. Okay, he uses a different phrase in the verses, but the idea is exactly what Ben is saying. Discipline. What's the phrase that he uses? I have refined thee in the furnace of affliction. I don't think I want to volunteer for that job either, of being in the furnace of affliction. Um, but it is better than being cut off. But it hurts. And we may see some of that in our country because we're no more godly, no better than Israel. But God's character says, I'm going to take my people. And I think he says the same thing about his church. He has. Israel has chosen people, and then he has 
the church, which is the bride of Christ. And I think he says about both of them, I'm gonna discipline you because you belong to me. Not because you deserve it, but it's whose we belong to. We belong to God. I disciplined my children as they were growing up, but I didn't often discipline someone else's kids unless I was responsible for them when we were doing an outing or something. I think God says the same thing to you and I. Instead of being cut off, I'm going to discipline you in the furnace of affliction. And then he doesn't allow his name to be profaned. And this gets back to what Lynette was saying about Moses. He basically pulled this out of Moses. He says he does it for his own sake. He doesn't let his name be profaned. And Moses brought that up. He said, you know, if you cut off all of Israel, wouldn't the heathen profane your name and say you can't even accomplish what you said you would in Israel? And then lastly, God will not give his glory to another. All of this highlights why Israel exists today. All of this really highlights why you and I, his church, are not judged more harshly than what we are today. And so as we look forward, and I thought it was appropriate today to look at some of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, knowing that God is capable, he's trustworthy and faithful to finish what he's promised he would do. And so all of his word will come to fruition. Well, we're about out of time. I hear a few people in the hallway, not quite restless yet, but they're getting close. So we're going to close just a couple minutes early. Next week, we will pick up with Isaiah chapter 48, verses 12 through 22. And Israel is called in this passage to recognize their Messiah. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that it is for your mercy's sake and your name's sake that we aren't consumed. Just like you have told Israel, it's true for us as a nation. And Father, we've forsaken you and we, we come before you and humbly ask that because of who you are, that you would be merciful and send revival instead of judgment. If you base it on what we are, then we know we would deserve judgment. And so, Father, we lift that before you as our prayer for this next year, that you would refine, but you wouldn't judge and cut us off as a people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are as a great God that's far above his creation. And Father, we pray that we might exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today during the worship service. In Jesus' name, amen.